0: And we're Kermit's Kids. The Kids Talk. Your monthly graphic novel review. Welcome back, kids, and thanks for listening as we delve into Camelot 3000, our graphic novel for the month of the month of February. And joining me today is JJ. JJ, welcome back. How are you? I am doing great. This was such a fun
1: read, so thank you for bringing this one into the reading list for this year. Brought back a lot of of memories of reading this when it first came
0: out. This has always been one that I've wanted to cover and has actually sparked my imagination, being very much a Bronze Age kid growing up with comics and then being a big fan of the deluge of fantasy sci-fi films and mashing up of the genres in the late 70s and into the 80s, and truly this is reflective of the times. Camelot 3000 is an American 12-issue comic book limited series written by Mike W. Barr, penciled by Brian Boland. It was published by DC Comics from 1982 to 1985 as one of its first direct market projects and its first maxi-series. It was also the first comic book series to be printed on Baxter paper instead of newsprint, truly distinguishing itself in its production values. This was huge of the time. So let me let me set the
1: stage here and you know really just kind of call out my age here. I don't care anymore. 82 to 85. These were the prime years that I was in high school. And I had the luxury of right across the street from our high school was a comic book store, a direct to market comic book store. So we no more hunting for comics on the spinner racks in the local five and dime or the drugstore or whatever and searching high and low and some, some weeks you, some weeks you would get a comic, some weeks you wouldn't month to month hit or miss here. They were every month, every week. All the comics I wanted and being able to see something like this hit the newsstand or hit the comic stand was just such a big deal. I mean, it was such a departure from everything that we had before us.
0: Yeah, a a massive game changer. The industry would never be the same again once that direct market was established just absolutely amazing how that sent shockwaves through the industry.
1: Well, and this is something that Kirby had wanted for such a long time. And I think he pushed for this both at his tenure at DC and then later at Marvel was this idea of, let's improve the quality of the thing that we're creating. This isn't just a throwaway. Yes, you know, the, you know, it's price point is such that we want to keep it accessible, but it was maturing. The, the, the industry was maturing and there were a lot of people that had been collecting comics for a very long time. And so to have something like this was a real treat. Sad that it wasn't something that Kirby himself had worked on, but still, it was a a
0: monumental leap forward. And DJJ was a monumental leap forward, and actually that is a brilliant segue into the common ground that Jack Kirby has with this particular work, and let's discuss that in our Kirby kernel, little kernel of knowledge about our namesake, Jack. Hey, Wilford! Fire up the tractor! Time to harvest another Kirby J.J., entering into our curry kernel now, we have an interesting little bit of common ground, and that happens to be Morgan Le Fay. Morgan Le Fay is a character based on St. Aragain, daughter of Welsh king Malgwyn Gwynedd, who would become a supervillainess published by DC Comics. She debuted in The Demon, Volume 1, Issue Number 1, from September of 1972, and was created by Jack Kirby. The character is based on Morgan Lafayette, a mythical sorceress and half-sister of King Arthur, first made popular in Joffrey of Monmouth's Vitae Merlini, or The Life of Merlin. Now, this is awesome, because his
1: portrayal of Morgan in the demon was spot on and when you look at that and then you look here you can tell that they're both they're both coming from the same source they're coming from the same well of inspiration and this this evil villainous character really has become kind of an archetype there have been Authors that have, you know, worked to change the nature of the character uh, to present a more appealing or a more flattering light, and I, I appreciate that as well. But what we're getting here is direct from the source, the the character as it was portrayed in in the myths and legends of King Arthur.
0: Yeah, it is amazing, J.J., how true to form both Kirby's iteration of Morgan Le Fay is and what Mike Barr did with the character. And I can't help but think that Barr absolutely complemented the foundation of that Gerby had established with introducing the character being steeped in the very rich literary mythology that had been shared throughout the ages. And with that, why don't we head into a little creative chatter about our writer, Mike W. Barr, and our artist, Brian Boland. Whoever is this artist and this writer, I must meet them. Creative chatter. All right, Mike W. Barr is an American writer of comic books, mystery novels, and science fiction novels. He's perhaps the first writer to have written every one of the first four incarnations of Star Trek, Star Trek The Next Generation, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, and Star Trek Voyager in comic book form or any other. A comic book writer for many years, Barr's credits also include Camelot 3000, Batman, Son of Demon, Batman and the Outsiders, Detective Comics, The Maze Agency, and Mantra for the Malibu Ultraverse. His Batman scripts have been adapted for the movie Batman, Mask of the Phantasm, and for several episodes of Batman cartoon show. So, Barr is an extremely
1: accomplished writer, and... I think that's really on display here in Camelot 3000. This was obviously a passion project and being able to bring that to light. Clearly, he has a very down-to-earth um approach from the comics that you mentioned what's the common denominator there well frankly batman and batman carries a certain weight and gravitas with it and the fact that he's been able to move through so many of those so many of those different titles speaks to his accomplishment as a writer now batman and the outsiders was was pretty cool and groundbreaking in its time because this was the first time that Batman was leading a team and all of the problems that came with that of personalities that didn't work well together, you know, that's kind of a thing with all of these, t- all of these things that we're talking about, especially deep space nine, there's a lot of relationships and butting heads and, you know, how do people get along? Very ensemble like cast. And that's really What he's bringing here in Camelot 3000, it's not just King Arthur, but it's King Arthur and his knights, as well as Queen Guinevere here. So it's very much, how do all of these characters work together? I remember probably about 10 years or so ago, we went to a comic book convention in Columbus, Ohio. And... Mike Barr was there and I knew that he was going to be there. So I brought my copy of the graphic novel, the collected graphic novel of Camelot 3000 to get it, to get him to sign it. And when I handed it to him, you know, he was really surprised. He didn't think anybody still remembered Camelot 3000 because he was more well known for his Batman stuff. And really, this was my
0: introduction to bar, and I, I've been a fan ever since. Yeah, JJ, DC just... Doesn't hand Batman over to anyone. So it speaks volumes, his extensive work there, with one of those tentpole characters, part of the Holy Trinity over at DC. But what also comes through loud and clear is Mike's genuine love of science fiction. The fact that he dealt with the original Star Trek characters within that Shatner, Nimoy, Spock, and Kirk realm, and then goes into The Next Generation and Deep Space Nine and Voyager. There are beats that come through loud and clear as far as his love for science fiction here within Camelot 3000. And the same also can go for... Our artist here, Brian Boland. After publishing his first works in the underground comic scene, Brian Boland made his professional debut with the black Nigerian superhero Power Man. Now, this is not to be confused with the Marvel Power Man, but this is a different Power Man in 1975. He then became a successful artist on the Judge Dredd series in 2000 AD in that entire magazine comic. His Work was noted by the American Publishing House DC, and after doing some Green Lantern cover illustrations for DC, he was assigned to do the series Camelot 3000 with scriptwriter Mike Barr. Wow, talk about a baptism by fire over here on DC. Bolin has worked as an artist on the Batman series, doing the successful The Killing Joke graphic novel in 1988. He has collaborated with writers such as Garth Ennis, Neil Gaiman, Alan Moore, and, of course, Mike Barr, and has done many other cover illustrations for the DC Vertigo comic series Vamps and Blood and Waters, among others. He produced short stories for the English anthology Taboo.
1: Brian Boland has such an iconic style, and I think... If you search for any image of Judge Dredd, what you're going to get first and foremost is a Boland-drawn Judge Dredd. There is nothing more iconic than that that character, and the the work is so incredibly solid there is we'll talk more about his style but one thing that i just want to bring up here that's kind of tangentially related here is that brian actually also had a couple pieces of art in a role-playing game that was produced in 1984 by games workshop called golden heroes this has the distinction of being the first totally original british role-playing game that was released prior to that it was a lot of american imports of the day you know mostly dungeons and dragons and then later call of cthulhu this was distinctly british and there's still a very large following of the game and its later iterations uk squad squadron uk excuse me just you know there's nothing i think When I think of a a British artist, Brian Boland is one of the first ones that come to mind. And to have him working on Camelot 3000 just feels like it lends it a little air of legitimacy.
0: What do you think? Oh, indeed. Because Mike Barr also said that with having Brian Boland be the illustrator for Camelot 3000, it was refreshing to actually have a British artist portraying these amazing set of characters that had just captured the imagination of folks who have been enthralled with the Arthurian legends. And I can't think after now taking all of this in, knowing the time in which it was developed, uh, there was no better artist to have been chosen to do this. But, you know, that's with hindsight. I have no idea if the powers that be in the editor positions at DC really felt that way when they put Bolin to the task. But, you know, they were rewarded for fantastic judgment based on how both Barr and Boland were able to collaborate and really work incredibly well as a team. Agreed. There is
1: there is a real synergy between writer and artist here. And in the foreword to the graphic novel version that we read, Barr actually compliments Boland in the way that he he says, I was writing a lot at the beginning, and there was a lot of dialogue in the panels. And then when he started seeing Boland's artwork come in, he realized how much Boland's artwork said what needed to be said without the words. And he actually was able to pare back what was being written and let the art convey the story. I mean, that's That's a great compliment to Boland as an artist.
0: Yes, J.J., there is no higher praise that can be bestowed on an artist from a writer. And this is the ultimate medium where you have the ability, through the visuals, to go beyond what words can actually convey, and again, no higher praise. So with that, J.J., why don't we head into a little comics archaeology and dig up some hidden gems here and frame, contextually, where the Arthurian legends here helped fuel what ultimately would become Camelot 3000. now comics archaeology you know this is my favorite part oh yes 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 and here we are within our comics archaeology segment having been originated by none other than JJ and since JJ is here this is yours what gems have you brought for us today well, as I was reading as I was rereading
1: this this classic Camelot three thousand it's been it's been on my shelf for so long, and I needed to blow the dust off it and reread it. I was actually inspired to go back and read some of the source material, namely La Morte d'Arthur by sir thomas mallory and it was so amazing to read the comic and then read some of these source materials which really are a collection and codification of individual stories that have been told and bringing them all into one place and it's not all about king arthur it's about arthur the knights their adventures, chivalry, all of this stuff, bringing it together. And I was looking back and thinking back to when this came out. As I mentioned before, this was during my uh, my core high school years. So one of the biggest factors that influenced so many of us of that generation was Star Wars. And here you had something that was bringing mythology into science fiction, but that core mythology was still there. We've talked on Uh, other podcasts you've explored the roots of fantasy literature and comics that this had a resurgence in the 70s we were seeing more of that in comics with characters like prince valiant the shining knight the black knight and even mentioned earlier demon by jack kirby with merlin in that as well as morgan lefay and there seemed to be this sort of ramping up this in the zeitgeist of of humanity this this you know call to a a more chivalrous time and leading up to the publishing of Camelot 3000 we had a couple key events that were happening just prior to that and one of them was the movie Excalibur so prior to that it was the 1960s with the musical of of Camelot but here was a retelling of the Camelot myth through the movie Excalibur and this came out in 1981 it was very stylistic and you know the bright shining armor but yet the, you know this was juxtaposed against the the dark and mysterious nature of Merlin and the you know the dark arts that kind of surrounded him and we also had in A lesser known work by comic book legend Gil Kane was a book called Excalibur. Excalibur with an exclamation point. So if you look it up, Gil Kane had published this book and or authored this book and it was a more down-to-earth retelling of the Arthur myths. There was not really the mysticism and magic surrounding the character that some of the legends would hold sway with. So I think there was it just seemed to be the right time for this for this story to be told in this way what a great way to combine some of the things that we learned from watching star wars and empire strikes back and bringing it into the comic book medium this blending of science and magic and mysticism and mythology, bringing them together in a format that is about high adventure, about bold and noble characters, and really about sacrifice and duty as well. I, I think that there, it just seemed to be the right time for this. I couldn't think of this being done at any other time than when it was published. And since then obviously we've had a lot of we've had a lot of wonderful Arthur related stories in movies and in television and so forth. I I can't believe you didn't correct me here. We had Monty Python and the Holy Grail in the early 70s. So there was another <laughs> There was another uh, Arthurian legend that was brought to light. So again, you know this this character I think is so steeped in our in the mainstream, right? It, it has become so so iconic that it seems to be, even though it's a completely British character, everybody
0: can find some reason to connect with that character. Well, I, I think you, central to it, J.J., is the fact, that, and this is actually what the Arthurian legends have in common with what George Lucas had developed within the Star Wars mythos. And that is, you have the hero's journey happening here, and you know the, the quest for the grail, and you have those essential elements that, on a universal scale, appeal to people. And I think that's a strength here within these Arthurian legends you have a lot of universal themes that cross through or cut through cultural differences and are actually unifiers in a lot of instances for folks to be able to go, oh, okay, I understand where this mythology is coming from. I I, want to add just a, a little something else here. And by the way, there was nothing there to correct as far as Monty Python and the Holy Grail, because frankly, that's that's satire at its best. Uh, and and really, the, the Brits there and, and, and the Pythons just, you know, taking the piss out of that entire legend and, and saying, okay, look, this is one of our biggest exports, and did you just see the hysteria that was surrounding Camelot, the Broadway musical, and then, oh, by the way, they made it into this movie that got blown into incredible proportions, and everything was King Arthur, Knights of the Round Table, but... When we saw this reset happen within Star Wars in particular in 1977, hey, wait a second. This is taking root mythology, universal themes, and putting it in a science fiction setting. Well, hey, that's exactly what Camelot 3000 is. And what Barr and Boland do here is truly magical. And during the publication history of this, while this was happening, you had the movie Crow come out. So uh, there was another overt application of taking mythological medieval kind of setting and feel and throwing it into a science fiction environment. Like you said, JJ, you hit you hit it right on the nose. It was in the zeitgeist. And this is truly a celebration and I'd say modern classic in comics and graphic novels of what came out here with Camelot 3000. Yeah.
1: The other thing we started to touch upon this earlier was the fact that this was Direct Market's first exclusive series. And I think a, first off, the subject matter of the, a truly unique endeavor. This isn't just, hey, let's put Superman in kind of get a few bucks out of it this was something that they chose to focus on to highlight and say look at what we can do with the medium but one of the things that i think was also extremely important about this direct market first exclusive was the fact that they did not have to get the approval of the comics code authority and because of that you could have some very adult themes in here such as a transsexual knight and dealing with lesbianism and you know really really putting that forefront and making it something that is central to the character and therefore it's something that just can't be ignored it can't be swept under the rug
0: yeah it was right there at the forefront and Mike Barr in the introduction to this compiled graphic novel had said that he felt he had pushed the envelope about as far as it would go at the time and for many first-time readers who might find the content somewhat tame by today's standards and this is these are mike's words keep in mind that the series was first published 25 years ago well more well beyond that from when he wrote this and that nothing dates as badly as the issues of yesterday's rebellions which is so true i mean that is so eloquently put but for its time It was amazingly groundbreaking, very forward-thinking, and uh, Mike is to be applauded for really pushing those boundaries here and taking advantage of this direct market. Now, I'll remind our listeners that this was not the first time that the Comics Code had been skirted by the industry. If we go back to the 70s, that was the advent of the magazine format, which did not apply as a comic book. Well, it was a magazine, and many of those horror comics that chose to push the envelope in the 70s and have more adult-oriented themes in the occult and all of that good stuff were... Not beholden to the Comics Code Authority because they were published as magazines. So, this is another variation of that theme, but different because these weren't on spinner racks. These weren't on newsstands. You had to go to your comic book shop to get this comic, and you'd only find it there. And the production values at the time were just completely in a whole different stratosphere. Agreed. Well, JJ, what do we think? Shall we head on to that literary aisle and begin our discussions of the story and the art of Camelot 3000? Absolutely. Our landhole. There's our literary aisle. All right, now that we're on our literary aisle, J.J., what were your general impressions of the story arc here on Camelot 3000? First and foremost,
1: I need to really focus on the work that Barr did to be true to the source material and really celebrate that source material. As I was saying I had started reading as a, as a reaction to reading Camelot 3000 I had delved into Mallory's La d'Arthur. and there were several things that jumped out at me as I was reading it. In the first issue or the first chapter as we as we read our as we read the graphic novel, there's a scene where Merlin is disguising not only himself, and arthur but also um thomas prentis the young lad or the you know the young adult that freed or woke arthur from his slumber to to find guinevere and in doing so he disguises them as anybody that looks at them will see the people are in the uniform of the military services of what would be america of that of that day of the year 3000 and It calls back to a scene very early in the Legends of Arthur where Merlin disguises Uther Pendragon, King Arthur's father, Merlin himself, and an aide of or or a loyal soldier of Uther's as a knight and squires of that knight so that Uther could bed the lady of Cornwall Castle while thinking that it was her husband. So here's a direct usage. We see Barr using Merlin in exactly the same way as we see it in La Arthur. d'Arthur. It's very subtle, but it's just the callbacks to that are so, so strong. And even the use of Stonehenge as the resting place of Merlin, one of the oldest known depictions of Stonehenge shows a giant helping Merlin build it. So this goes back this goes back so long it's 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 just embedded in the idea of that Arthurian legend. And the use of Glastonbury Tor, the resting place of Arthur is supposedly the site of the isle of avalon which is where arthur goes after he's mortally wounded so not only did he do his research again this is just things that lends that lends the authenticity to the telling of the tale and do you need to know that in order to enjoy it no but those little touches are things that just resonate in the story it just it helps set the stage very early on. And from there, the action picks up very quickly, and we start seeing that it's going to get faster. It's going to get more furious. you're you know, you're holding on, you're white knuckling it as the story is is racing towards its climax.
0: A okay, j, so just listening to you recount here the story plotting and how the authenticity is just weaved in the legend into this new mythos to develop Camelot 3000 by bar. I was having Roxy Music's Avalon go through my head. You know, I'm a very musical kind of guy. And this again, folks, is the Zeitgeist. That album was released in May of 1982. So everything really was going King Arthur at the time, okay? In addition to that, when we're talking about the character development here... And particularly in the plotting, Barr does an incredible job of giving voice to very strong female characters and also sharing those strong female characters' perspectives on what is going on as it relates to the round table, as it relates to the opposition to the round table here which we have morgan lefay and her point of view on what all is going on here between arthur the round table all the various personalities and then manipulating those particular characters in a way in which to gain her advantage throughout this limited series and that harkened back to me to a, a fantastic novel, which I absolutely love, by Marion Zimmer Bradley, and that being The Miss of Avalon, which of course are the perspectives of the Arthurian legends told by the female characters. And that came out in 1983. So while this series was going on, there was also, I'm detecting a movement of, hey, let's get the female perspective here, some do. In this story, and I think that Barr does a brilliant job, not only through the plotting, but also through the dialogue, of truly expressing those unique female character points of view in this series. I have nothing but respect for the job he did there. And I think
1: that is a sign of the times when this is being written, and I think building on... (laughs) The the women's liberation movement that we touched upon way back when we started talking about Ms. Marvel and you know how this have blossomed. If you were to do a straight translation from Lamort Darthur, the female perspective is extremely limited. It is a primarily male cast and the feminine perspective is limited to a very passive role. We do not have passive female characters in Camelot 3000. Guinevere is is as much a knight as Lancelot, where in the original telling she would have been more passive. Here, she is extremely active. She's a commander of essentially the American forces, and there's no there's no sitting on the sidelines with her. And then you get the, and then you've got the, the transsexual Sir Tristan, who is a knight reawakened in a female body. So absolutely, this was, this was absolutely a, a sign of the times where I, it's kind of a midpoint between Mallory and Mists of Avalon, where Mists of Avalon goes to the other end of the spectrum where it's strictly, feminine perspective. Here, I think there is, it still is more masculine, but there's much more of the feminine
0: involved in this. Yeah. And from that perspective, JJ, that was, for for me, a very welcomed and refreshing point of view from what really was rarer to see. In that Bronze Age of comics that were being produced at the time. And therefore, it was, it distinguished itself in a very positive manner. And I agree, it, it doesn't go the full length that Miss of Avalon does, but it certainly is far more balanced than anything else that had been presented up to that time with respect to the King Arthur legends being employed in a manner such as this. It was, again, I just thought it was very, very well done and with a, a very astute hand by Mike Barr. Now, JJ, when we're looking at Camelot 3000, right there in the opening Issue. You have the introduction of Thomas Prentice, and I think that is our, as a reader's, presence, our connector into this world that is Camelot 3000. And I thought that was very, again, very well done by Barr to give us a vehicle, the reader, to be able to relate to as we are then being introduced to King Arthur, that reawakening there in the tomb, and then, of course, going out and finding, discovering the modern incarnations of all the various knights of the round table. So let's let's talk about Prentiss for a minute here. So you're absolutely
1: correct. Let's take the name apart first. So first, Thomas Prentiss. And I think this is Barr, and this is purely my opinion, I think this is Barr tipping his hat to... Sir Thomas Mallory, the author of the Le Morte d'Arthur. So, that's the first thing. The second thing is the name, Prentice. I see that as being short for apprentice. So, he quickly takes on the role of he quickly takes on the role of King Arthur's squire leading him doing what he needs and helping fill in the gaps to what is what's going on. Arthur awakens, he's in a strange land, he's in a strange time or he's in his homeland but no longer recognizable. So, Thomas really provides the as you say the stand-in for us to say, "Oh, they are here's what's going on." Hey, well, you know, what's different about the year 3000? How did we get to this situation? Who are these aliens and, and why are they doing all this stuff? And really helps helps us fill into that. But he also forms another, fills in another role. And that is that he has the classic hero origin. By the third or fourth page of the story, he's orphaned. You know, he's trying to escape to France from these aliens, trying to escape the aliens, get across the channel to France. And in doing so, both of his parents are are killed and he's he's off and running he's trying to fend for himself and protect himself and that's when he stumbles on king arthur so he's got that classic hero origin there i mean he's got the blonde hair he's got the looks of a luke skywalker really you know he's our stand-in but we do see him go through a transformation into fully becoming a knight
0: of the round table so he is an apprentice no more KJ, that is right on the nose. I could not agree with you more as far as my perceptions of how I read that character. And I thought Barr was rather clever in the tribute that he made there with that character. And providing a great definition of how that Character would be a very powerful enabling vehicle for him as a storyteller throughout this series and keep me, at least I know, and others, and perhaps you felt the same, engaged with the story through Thomas's eyes and also allowing us to, through his exploration, detect more of the nuances amongst these characters. I I felt he was a really effective vehicle for unwrapping some of the complexity of these characters, almost like peeling away that onion skin uh, and allowing us to to delve a little deeper here. And uh, again, really, really, really well done. I I can't heap enough praise on the use of that character. Right. Well, and another thing, so... It's bringing,
1: it's bringing us up to speed on the setting. And in that respect, Thomas kind of fades into the background once we've gotten past the first issue, right? He kind of fades back a little bit until Tristan comes on the scene. And then he starts to come forward again because you can't... He could have made the transsexual character really just kind of a like a one-trick pony. But then now you've got it from Thomas's perspective being attracted to the female aspect of Tristan and Tristan identifying with the masculine and the challenges that, that, that presents to the, to the relationship. And I think that it's, I think that it's handled with a, a soft touch and a, a genuine care to let's let's talk about this. Let's put it out there and let's talk about this. As opposed to taking either a derogatory view or maybe a more cynical view, this is just trying to shine the light on the situation and let the reader decide, well, you know, what do you think about this? I don't think that Barr is preaching anything other than saying, Here's the reality of the situation and what can come of it. Make of it what you will.
0: Yeah, he does a fine job of presenting a scenario or situation within this plot, but not editorializing at all. And I thank him for that. It was it was wonderful to truly allow the reader to come up with their own conclusions and thoughts as these characters were presented and their backstories were revealed and their dynamics, and that was the really great thing here, that dynamics were revealed then based on those past histories. Because if we look at Guinevere and look at Lancelot, well, guess what, folks? The same problems are still there, but now we're in the year 3000. And how those characters reincarnated and immediately, once they're in the presence of one another, oh, wait a second, we can't go down that same path that we've gone down from generation to generation when we've met up before. So uh, that was exquisitely done. Great, authentic callbacks to the mythos and superb integration, then, of the mythos into the modern era.
1: Absolutely. I I really agree on that point. The one thing I think might sit a little uneasy with readers are the characterizations of the various political figures of the time. So those political figures end up being treated with more of a satirical touch where King Arthur and his knights are the epitome of chivalry and fighting for a noble cause. You've got these foils in the form of the leader of the Americas, the leader of Russia, the leader of China, and the leader of Africa. These, these caricatures of leaders basically straw men that are set up for Arthur to kind of sweep in and, you know, get the backing of the populace of the world. You know, this is no longer just Britain. This is the world that
0: he is, he is acting for. That's an excellent point, JJ, the power vacuum that exists here in the year 3000 by these United defense forces, on Earth of those various regions. And you have Arthur going up against Morgan Le Fay, and sometimes unknowingly in some instances, and how much then Morgan Le Fay is pulling the strings of these various leaders and trying to get them to do her will. Uh, But again, unbeknownst to them, a lot of uh, trickery, Happening, And when we're looking at this story, there were some really cool reveals that would happen later in the, the book that were true to form as far as thematically keeping with the Arthurian legends. But one in particular actually blew me away. Uh, when we got deep into uh, the story here. And it's one that has a very deep connection with Laurie, Morgan Lefay Fay herself. What, what were your impressions as far as how Barr actually kept some of the reveals towards the tail end of the story? And do you think that worked effectively? Or, J.G., were you kind of tuned into based on the personalities and how the reveals of the personalities were going, do you think that Barr at all tipped his hand? Were you surprised at all? I mean, I know this was a reread for you, but when you were hearkening back to when you first read the series, do you think those were effectively employed by Barr?
1: Well, we're talking a long time ago, so... (laughs) I think I was a very different person at the time, and. If memory serves, I did take it as quite a bit of a surprise in this reveal. So not wanting to ruin the spoilers to give folks the true, the true experience of it. The I think that Barr does call attention to the character by the comparison of that character to others around them. I think that there's a very difference. A very strong, I guess, halo effect around this character before they're revealed. And then once they're revealed, uh, that's the last thing. It's like throwing Nitro into the mix. It really rockets up after that to an extremely climactic finale. Yeah, I think that's all we should probably say about that without giving too much away.
0: Yeah, I agree, JJ. And what's wonderful, actually, right now is another kid is joining us, and that's Doc. Doc! We're glad that you could join the conversation here as we're reviewing the story and the plot for Camelot 3000. What were your general impressions of the story and what really stood out to you from a plotting and story development standpoint from Barr? in general, generally speaking, I'm definitely
2: not as much into like the fantasy comics that, that you and JJ, um, are, but I'm glad, um, you know what I thought? Yeah, I'd like to be a part of this. It sounds like an interesting story. I'm so glad I read, I probably would have never read this on my own. I have to admit that. And I'm so glad I did. It just grabbed me right from the first issue. I thought it was a really, really incredible retelling of the kind of, of that Camelot and the King Arthur story. And it just infused all the classic elements of, a King Arthur legend into this new future kind of time. And I like it too, that the, you know, it's, it's not, they don't make everything so futuristic that it seems like ridiculous, that it's kind of feels like it's in our world, just a couple years in the future kind of thing. And I really loved uh, how like, yeah, everything that they infused in there and how they brought back all the classics, the Excalibur, uh, Morgan Le Fay and um, uh, Merlin and everybody like that. I thought it was really, really well done. And, Especially with the backdrop of this alien invasion. I think it was a really cool idea because they we have all the old knights of the round table being, like you said, their their identities were kind of hidden. Almost like in this, I guess, I mean, for lack of a better word, like in a reincarnation. Yeah. And that was really, I thought it was a really cool idea, like you, you mentioned. And it's a really cool idea. It's like, oh, one of the knights is trapped in the body of a woman. He's still has his male like mentality but he's in this female body and it also i thought it was kind of interesting how the other knights are looking even though they know and i'm sorry, i cannot remember for the life of me which which knight he was um oh, it was tristan that no, you just said tristan um and even other the, the other knights know that's tristan they still treat him differently because he has the form of a woman and they think he's not now he's not going to be as fierce a warrior and everything and tristan um they prove themselves to be extremely apt at the at the task at hand. So I, I thought it was really, really creative. and I thought it was a really good way they dealt with with those kind of issues. They even kind of deal with that sexism kind of deal. And uh, I think uh, you know, Tristan comes out on top. it's uh, and I thought it was a really I liked her arc in there that she you know she goes even so far as she was going to betray everybody just to get what she wants which is her male form back so i thought that was a really cool element to the story as well but um i thought it was all everything was dealt with in a very like in, intelligent way and nothing was exploitative
0: at all about it doc that was fantastic and what i'd like to do now jj if you're up for it too and doc is let's dive into bolan's art and our impressions of that art and how it effectively supported everything that Barr was trying to accomplish from a plotting standpoint and dialogue standpoint. I mean, it is amazing how powerful this art is throughout Camelot Three Thousand. Absolutely. Um, where to start? I mean,
1: this is just this is just really exquisitely done from beginning to end. So you've got a you've got a future setting you've got knights that are easily 4000 years out of date you know so how do you portray them in a way that they still look legitimate and and fit into the setting and i think what boland did was make sure that everyone had a unique look one of the things that is challenging when you look at films that deal with Uh, knights in armor is that they're very very difficult to tell one person apart from the other if they don't have their coat of arms on their shield. And even then, you have to recognize the coat of arms in order to tell Lancelot from Gawain. So here, they've all been given a very unique look. King Arthur is dressed in reds and golds, very regal and rich. Lancelot, is in white and silver and has a very paladin-like feel to him. I can't look at Lancelot in this story and not think of a paladin from D&D or from Three Hearts, Three Lions, the novel. It's just, it, it, everybody has such a distinct look about them. You've even got, uh, I think it's Sir Galahad, who is Japanese and has a very samurai look to him? So there's very much a case of making the characters unique, so that they you get a sense of their personality and their character from their armor, from their look, from the way they dress. Really, again, Bolin bringing a sense of realism,
0: groundedness to the to the series. Yeah, JJ. I uh, yeah, I I thought the uniqueness visually with which all of these knights of the Round Table were portrayed, and then of course starting with Arthur, because Arthur is the first clue that okay, look, we're gonna have this medieval look within this futuristic world because he's taken out of the tombs that way. I mean that that's how he was he was buried as where we're meeting up with the other knights as they are in their reincarnated states here in the year 3000. And I thought something else to be very clever was Merlin telling Arthur here, distribute the talismans and give them to every one of the knights so they'll remember those slumbering memories, essentially bringing them up to speed through these talismans the talismans, uh, what, what their journey had been in, in that former life. Uh, that was great. I, I really, really loved that. And uh, Merlin almost taking on this omnipresent persona. And, and when there is a necessity for something to move the story or plot forward, Merlin was one of those central figures, as is also Morgan Le Fay in her manipulating manner. And Uh, Morgan's uh, attire leaves nothing to the imagination. It is wow. Um, It is definitely a celebration of the female form. There's no doubt about that. It is definitely in keeping with that 70s bronze age uh, sensual stereotypical sensual female figure. I mean, well, what more is there to be said there from Bolin's perspective?
2: She, she was hot. Let's face it. She was hot. <laughs> and yeah, but I, I think it was like everything was done. Like the elements that you just talked about, I think it was all done. It was not in an exploitive way to try to like shock people.
1: Well, and if you look at her... Compared to compared to Guinevere, I, it's kind of funny. I look at those two characters, and they could have been plucked. Their outfits they could have been plucked from the television series Buck Rogers, <laughs> so or the movie Flash Gordon. Yeah, there was there was a definite aesthetic there. But speaking of the aesthetic, to, uh, something that lends weight to the King Arthur character is. The look of King Arthur calls back the comic Prince Valiant, and I think it's it was to me it seems purposeful. They reversed the colors of Prince Valiant. Prince Valiant had a blue tunic with a red cloak. King Arthur has a red tunic with a blue cloak. So you know something something to be said there for you know again visual visual clues that help lend
0: weight to the characters. Indeed, indeed. And although being, as you had pointed out before, still better balanced, but still a little more male-centric because the majority of the members here of of the Round Table are male, and their perspective being male, what is different in this version is the multicultural nature now of these Knights of the Round Table. You had brought up Galahad before, being very much out of samurai culture, Japanese. Well, when we also delve into African culture here, where we have Merlin going to Johannesburg, South Africa, to then recruit another one of our Knights of the Round Table. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think Tristan is...
1: I can't remember if if the Tristan character uh, is... I know the person that she was betrothed to was Canadian, and then maybe she was Irish. It it was definitely a multicultural cast, and Guinevere being from the Americas. It was was certainly something... It was more evident of the times to show a more... it's a story about saving the world, not about saving in England or Britain. And you have to represent that world
0: in the comic. Well said, indeed. So we, we've definitely expanded the scope of what's at stake here. It's just not a kingdom. You're right, it is the world that's at stake here.
1: Well, I had one more thing that I think I, we should touch upon, and that is the aliens in this. I think that the aliens are certainly influenced by the the movie alien um we wouldn't get the the sequel till 86 after this series had been released but there's there's certainly a similarity between um, the aliens uh, of this the villains of this series um and the alien that Hunted Sigourney Weaver on the Nostradamus.
0: Ah, great point. Great point. And, and, and JJ, just to backtrack a, a second here to, to give folks a lay of the land, we, we have Lancelot being French. We have Guinevere being American. You have, we have this Thomas Prentice character, the apprentice. And when we get into uh, Sir Percival, and that's being portrayed as like a, a neo-men. Uh, Sir Galahad, a Japanese warrior, that samurai warrior. Sir Tristan being a white female and very much in that Celtic vein, Irish. And then Sir gwain being African, a, a black man. I, I, this, this, this united uh, security uh, group... It is pretty amazing that's put together out of the Knights of the Round Table. And when you're getting back to your point, I think you bring up an excellent observation there with regard to the aliens that are a threat and how much they were influenced, visually speaking, from the movie Alien and then the sequel, ultimately Aliens. But again, that would not be in Bolin's uh mine but certainly the the first movie alien um the ridley scott classic would would was is is definitely prominent here there's no doubt about it yeah
1: i i think that we can't you know the the 800 pound gorilla in the room here the the lightsaber like swords that the <laughs> that the knights wield once they're, once they're, uh, you know, fully armed and armored, but, you know, going at it just as, just as much with uh, blaster pistols as they are with swords. Um, Even, even King Arthur takes up a blaster and and uses it to dispatch aliens uh, in his path. So it's, you know, it's, it's that you would think it would be jarring to see that but it's not and again i think it goes back to boland and the realism that he's rendering this that it just seems natural and real as they wield these weapons as they mow down the aliens as they fight their way um across you know the barren plains of uh the 10th planet of the solar system you know it's it's really, really, it's solid. It is so solid. And if, if I don't know if anybody else could have
0: pulled it off, but Boland just does an amazing job with it. I agree. I agree with you. Hey, Doc, what were your impressions here of Boland's artwork and how he truly enhanced the story through his visuals? The artwork, I think, is just amazing. There are... Every splash page in
2: each issue is just absolutely amazing. It's breathtaking with the detail in the artwork and just the uh, the sheer like grand grandioseness of it. I don't even know if that's a word, <laughs> but it's it just it makes you stop. And I I like when I was uh, reading through it, I took screenshots of each one so I could go back and just look at the, some of those screenshots or the of the splash pages. The artwork is just it's just phenomenal. It is even if there were no words in this, I would I would le- I would look through every single issue and just you know, just, just for the artwork alone. It is, it's fantastic. He is, he is so kingly in the artwork. It's like, if you didn't know, if you just open up a random page, you would know that's king art. I mean, he has a king presence, bigger than life kind of presence. And it was just, it was just phenomenal. So my, my, my trademark, my standard when it comes to, especially the King Arthur legend was the 1981 film Excalibur. I know JJ already talked about this. I absolutely love, I was like, I think that was the first like three hour movie that i watched and growing up, like when it was on, it was on Prism. It was the local like cable channel that showed movies in our area. When we were growing up, I watched it every single time it came on. I was captivated by it and that became my standard whenever I would look at anything that had to do with Camelot or King Arthur. And this story has absolutely every element that was in Excalibur it had every character, even if they were just mentioned. And maybe they weren't detailed, but they were just mentioned. The lady in the lake is there. I mean just everything. So that's what I really loved about this story. Um, I think it was just so brilliantly writ- written that this the uh, the author knows his, his like his history and his mythology when it comes to Camelot and King Arthur and the artwork, you couldn't have asked for any, any better artwork to uh, complement this story. I think they go absolute hand in hand. And as far as who I'd recommend this to, I would recommend this to absolutely everyone, if you love fantasy and like this kind of era, then you would, you're definitely going to love the story. And even people like myself who maybe like a very select part of the King Arthur legend in this, like the movie Excalibur, I think you're going to really enjoy this too, because it's just. When it gets down to it, I mean, it's just really fantastic writing and artwork, and that's what we're looking for when we want to read a comic, something that's engrossing, that just really grabs you and you just really get involved with the characters. And you were, you know, there were, there are a few characters that we lose during the 12 issues and you really kind of get heartbroken because these characters really, they were developed so well. Um, And uh, and so I recommend this to everybody, absolutely anybody who thinks um, that likes comic books (laughs) because the writing and the art is just pinnacle.
0: Absolutely, Doc. I I couldn't agree more along those points. And to, to bring up one of your points, you know, this space station, which essentially is the the reestablishment of Camelot on a moon no less. And the structure up there is an incredible incredible mashup of not only space exploration but but putting of a modern medieval castle on, on a moon. I, JJ what, what how do you feel uh Boland did with that one pulling that off?
1: Well, you couldn't have king arthur without a castle right you have to have camelot camelot at least as a base of operations has to be there and i think you know having this futuristic mansion that belonged to the Lancelot character because he's the richest man in the world, just, it made sense. Um, it, it also helped that, you know, Lancelot was bankrolling their resistance. So, but it just, you know, it was an easy thing to do then because there was no no real fight to, to claim it, uh, especially once Lancelot showed up and was awakened to the memories of his previous life.
0: Indeed, indeed. So, J.J., how would you wrap up here this collaboration between Barr and between Boland as far as how one complemented the other in moving plot and story forward? Pacing is a little slow in the beginning
1: but you almost have to do that you have to establish the setting camelot 3000 takes place in a future that has to be rendered and once you've established that then you can move much more quickly and i think after we get that, after we get that grounding in that lesson from Thomas Prentice as to what's going on and how we got to the year 3000, I think things move quickly after that. Uh, The book read so well, even after all these years, I think somebody coming to it for the first time might, might You know, hit a speed bump here or there where there are some elements clearly of the time. Some of the fashions of the year 3000 scream 1980. (laughs) But given that, given that, I still think it holds up so well. I think as an adventure story, it holds up so well. Things move at a very quick pace. There's a back and forth. There's genuine hardship, there's genuine sacrifice, a call to duty, I think it's got all of the right stuff in it.
0: Yeah, I I tend to agree with you, JJ. There was never a dull moment here, I will admit, because you're establishing the story the setting, the characters. It's gonna be slow. It's it's world-building to a certain extent within its first two issues, but man, it really begins to hit its stride towards the tail end of issue three and throughout the remaining issues. And there it culminates here in its 12th issue. So it's it's pretty meaty with regard to story. And just the uh, action becomes rather fast and furious the more the conflicts come to a head. I am Dungeon Master. And with the times, JJ, and this really being indicative of its setting interest, the fandom, if you will, of this mashing of science fiction to fantasy, you and I are both big gamers. and And I know that although this series... Camelot 3000 did not provide direct inspiration. However, the Arthurian legends and the reemergence and the popularity of that would actually inspire a particular game of the day, and that would be Pendragon by Chaosium. And Pendragon, or King Arthur Pendragon, is a tabletop role-playing game in which players take the role of knights performing chivalric deeds in the tradition of the Arthurian legend. Very reminiscent of, very much, our emphasis here, again, in Camelot 3000 was one of character studies, of personality traits and passions. We saw that in these panels. Otherwise, it uses a fairly traditional game mechanics for normal play based to some degree on the basic role-playing system or BRP system. So, JJ, we have this Arthurian legend permeating through culture. We're seeing it in novels. We're seeing it in TV programs. We're seeing it in movies. We're seeing it in its various forms of literature. And here we have it manifesting itself in a role-playing game of of the day, and that role-playing game coming out at the tail end of when Camelot 3000 was being published. Again, it just
1: goes back to that zeitgeist that we were talking about. There was something in the air in the 80s that was calling for noble and chivalric deeds indeed. I think that the characters, the stories provide... They're so archetypical in their nature that they, they are touchstones. They're things that we can all connect with. And I, I don't know that we can make the point any more strongly than we have of how much it's permeated. And, you know, something of the day was, you know, the early 80s, this was the hero. This was a calling for a, a more
0: chivalric hero. And you know something? Bonnie Tyler was also calling out for a hero, too, back in the day. Wasn't she? (laughs) She was. She was holding out for a hero. And that hero was King Arthur. And, And, J.J., I don't know what more is to be said here about this other than I think we are in violent agreement about how much we both loved Camelot 3000 and would recommend it to just about any reader. but. Let, let's let's get a little more specific in our final recommendation and wrapping this up. JJ, who would you recommend Camelot Three Thousand Two? Do you think there's a specific lover of a genre or a reader of comics that this would really appeal to, other than? A general endorsement to, hey, look, th- this is a groundbreaking work that in-, in the day, everyone should at least read once.
1: Yeah, I th- I think it has that air about it that I think it appeals to a very broad base of broad demographic. I think if you enjoy adventure literature, if you enjoy noble and heroic characters, if you appreciate good deeds, and duty, and potential sacrifice, then I think you will enjoy this story because it's unique. It's not, it has all the elements that make up a great story. It it follows the course of Campbell's A Hero's Journey, but at the same time, it's such a neat and unique mashup of of cultures and of genres. And it's a product of its time. I think, yeah, I, I think this is a wide, cast the net wide here. I think you, you owe it to yourself to read this, especially if you're an a fan of adventure literature. Well, kids,
0: I don't think there's anything more to be said that JJ just didn't cover right there with that ringing endorsement. So, JJ, I want to thank you so much for coming in and sharing the experience here of reviewing Camelot 3000. And I also want to thank doc too. And we would love to hear from you. Once you have read Camelot 3000, please leave us a message via the anchor app or send us an email at Kirby's kids podcast at gmail.com. We're Kirby's kids. Hey,